What's up, guys? This is Gable Machinette, and welcome to show number 11, numero 11, here today at Startup Founders. Today, I have a great, great uh, co-founder. Her name is Sarah Cummings, and she is the co-founder of Teach Ted. Now, Ted is a lovely teddy bear. Yeah, it's a lovely teddy bear, and Ted has only one goal. The main goal of Ted is actually to help children to understand what the hell is going on when they're facing a medical procedure? I, I love this startup because I have kids. And in an interesting way, okay, me and Sarah, we share a few experiences when our kids were facing the challenge of going to hospital. My oldest, Sebastian, ended up having to have operation when he was like, I think, six, five years old. And it was extremely confusing for him. It was stressful for, for him, I mean, for myself, for his mom. And one of the things that this does, okay, is allowed, I mean, Ted, via an interactive app, helps to ease the anxiety for young children undergoing medical treatments and also for their families. So I love this idea. This is such a good cost, to, I mean, to have in the in this show. And hopefully if you are parents or you're building an app, you're going to find the interview with Sarah inspirational, one of the biggest takeaways of this interview is Sarah's going to talk about storytelling and how storytelling is such a vital tool for startups, for launching products, and for finding your tribe out there. So Sarah's an expert in storytelling, and hopefully after this interview, you're going to support the idea of teaching TED, and not only that, start applying some of the lessons of the storytelling in your own business, in your own startup. So that's it. Today, Sarah Cummings in Startup Founders. Episode show number 11. Sorry, thank you so much for being on this show. I'm excited to have you here. And every single time that I interview someone, I actually let the founder introduce themselves and tell me a little bit who you are and what's your startup uh, or business. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's always exciting to talk to other founders and share our story and I love hearing other people's stories so much. So my name's Sarah Cummings. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Teach Ted. Uh, we're a health tech startup. Uh, we're producing apps and books that help kids prepare to go to hospital and do medical treatments and we use preparation through play to reduce anxiety for them and their family um, and help basically families better navigate what are often quite um, traumatic or daunting times for them. I have a feeling that there must be a story behind this, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's always one, isn't there? So I am not from health tech uh, or health in general. My background is mainly financial services, but I'm a parent, as is my co-founder, um, also called Sarah. Um, so we call her Sarah to avoid confusion. Uh, Basically, my story is that when my kids were younger, I had to take them into hospital for pretty routine operations, adenoids and grommets. Um, we had an awesome paediatric surgeon, really lovely anaesthetist and great um, staff. We weren't in a children's hospital, we were in a general hospital. Uh, and they were really good about explaining everything when we actually got into the hospital. But when my daughter had to have the anaesthetic, so basically they put a mask over your face and um, and put you to sleep and she went down screaming and as a parent there is something really primal about saying no no sweetie you just stay there while the strange man puts you to sleep uh, that I just found really hard to deal with and when they go down screaming they usually wake up screaming so as a parent it's, it's really quite traumatic for you as well uh, and when I looked around for something that might have helped me prepare them we couldn't find anything and my co-founder, Sarah, has had um, similar experience, but also her youngest daughter had open heart surgery when she was six months old. So, oh, my God. Yeah, she's, uh, she's great now. She's the same size as my daughter. Um, they're born on the same day. And um, well, So both of the kids are born the same day and yeah, you have the same that, name. Well, that's how we met. Um, uh, we met at Mother's Group when our kids were about two weeks old. Uh, and she had, um, Sarah had put together this book to help her older son um, understand what was going on with her daughter and also for her daughter to share. And I was like, oh, that something like that would be such a great resource for parents to have 
Um, but their story, it was very personal. It was full of photos of them and, and it was very unique to their situation. So I have a background as well in playgroup. When my kids were younger, I did a lot of volunteering with playgroup and used to run baby play sessions, teaching parents how to um, help their children develop using play. And we were just like, you know what, all of this just seems very um, serendipitous is one of my favourite words. Um, very serendipitous that everything is coming together and why don't we create a tool that would help other families prepare using play. And then when we started to actually look into it, we found that there were these great people called child life therapists that work inside the children's hospitals and they do exactly that. So one-on-one, -on -one, they work with families to use play. Uh, it's called medical preparation play and they use that to help kids prepare for some really traumatic things like, you know, having to go in the MRI machines or... Um, having um, what is sometimes quite challenging treatments that they need to go in or, you know, their 20th blood test for the month. Uh, and so they do all of this one-on-one -on -one and we just went, you know what, we could take all of those tools and use the skills that we have in storytelling and technology to actually get this out to the rest of the world. So that's effectively what we're doing. Well, this is so spooky because, I mean, let me give you, I mean, a, a bit of background. My, my oldest had the same process, I mean, to grommet, um, I think... Yeah, it was traumatic. It was it was horrible. Mm. The, the same story, a hundred percent. So I understand the feeling, and in, in in fact, I had meningitis when I was his age. Oh wow! And it was even even worse, right? But when mm. when you see your kids completely suffering, confused, scared. So let me ask you one question. I mean, obviously, you're trying to tackle this from a. This is a medical industry that I guess when you're not a doctor. Is going to be challenging. So, how difficult was from the idea of this could be awesome to let's introduce this idea with medical professionals? Yeah, so I guess um, we're we're taking a slightly different tack on it in the sense that if you and you know yourself as a parent, if you're preparing your child for something. Um, particularly when they're younger, sort of up until about eight years old, where you can't really rationalise with them, they need to experience something to understand it um, and the early childhood frameworks that exist that our governments have put together for um, you know, daycare and preschool and all that sort of thing there's a very strong focus on learning through play so it's a well-known well-practiced technique that you learn through play and I don't know about you but when I had a second baby I bought my kids books about you know how about having another sibling there's a great book called there's a house inside my mummy which I can still recite almost the whole thing off by heart and when we were doing toilet training, we had books about it. And when they were going to school, we had books about it. Or, you know, there were games that they could play. And so what we feel we do is not instead of what already happens inside the hospital. It's an adjunct to it. And it's predominantly for before they go near a medical professional. So sometimes things like blood tests, you know, they're going to get a reference from a, a doctor and they're going to go and get the blood test so it's quite a short window but other things so going to hospital as an example pretty much every child is going to end up in a hospital by the time they're 10. Now it might be that they're going in for an operation like yours and mine it might be that they end up in emergency been there as well um, or it might just be that they're going to visit someone in hospital and all of those situations are actually quite daunting for a lot of children because they're in a really foreign environment. They're not used to being in environments with so much machinery and so many tubes and very sort of white and often quite hostile looking environments and lots of people walking around who are all in a uniform, often with masks that means their face is covered. And so what we are trying to do, I guess, is help with the social side of it. We're very confident that the medical teams are doing the very best they can to make this as easy for children as possible but preparing them once they're actually in the hospital doesn't help and also preparing the parents in the hospital doesn't help because we also know that a lot of anxiety in kids comes from the parents being anxious and the reality is that most people don't know what's going to happen and if you don't know what's going to happen you can't prepare your child for what's going to happen. So you're going to end up with a parent and a child who rock up to whatever the situation is, already anxious, very hard to get them down. Whereas if you can prepare them beforehand through stories and play, then they'll walk in there calm and it's a lot easier to keep them calm. So I guess we've had fantastic feedback from 
the medical practitioners. We're actually working with the Children's Hospital uh, at Westmead and also Sydney Children's Hospital um, to make sure that we get their feedback on whether we're covering off on the right areas or if there's any language that we're using that might cause problems. Um, and they're doing that because they want this sort of information to be available to people as well because it makes their lives easier. I love it. I love how, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, it's evident, right? The, the stress that we suffer as parents and obviously we, we transmit that, I mean, to our kids when we go to hospital. In many cases, we have no idea what's going to happen. So we are mm. nervous. They're going to get nervous at the same time. It's pretty interesting because... Uh, Sarah, my, my sister actually works uh, with this medical company in the U.S. and she makes um, videos, she actually hand draws videos to explain to patients about brain surgery. Okay? Oh, about, wow. Yes, interesting. And in the U.S., they're doing these kind of like cartoonish videos to explain patients exactly what's going to happen. Okay, yep. but it's for adults because they have discovered that when people have this trauma of, oh my God, I have a brain tumor, they they will never understand what's going to happen because they're so stressed that mm. by things in a very basic way, the patient eventually can understand a little bit what's going to happen. I guess for little kids, understanding what's going to happen that day is almost impossible. I mean, I mean, from their perspective, without a tool and an app like the ones you're developing. Tell me, how does it work initially when when a kid, a little, I mean, a little child is going to go on operation in Australia right now, what's the conventional approach? Uh, so it completely depends on which hospital you're going to, who your um, surgeon will be and who you are. So um, some of the hospitals have fantastic websites uh, that have lots of information for the parents. Uh, we actually have all of our children's hospitals actually put a lot of information up on their websites that anybody can access, but you don't know it's going to relate to your specific hospital experience. So some hospitals do a great job of putting together these packs that parents can read. The language in them is still usually quite complex. So if, um, if you're someone who's not familiar with, um, well, I guess, dealing with corporate, it can be a little bit harder. Um, but even like I'm, I'm quite used to the hospital system because I've done different things engaging with hospitals over the years. So I do understand it. I still did not know what was actually going to happen when I went in there. Um, if you have a, a great doctor, they will actually often explain to the child pre-surgery what will happen, but that happens once, right? And you know that kids need to hear things about 10 times before they take them in particularly if it's something like <laughs> that they actually don't want to listen to and they've just been offered a lolly for performing so well in their <laughs> test. Um, and then who you are as a person. So do you know lots of other people that have been to hospital that you can talk to? Um, are you in a regional area where actually the hospital is um, only deals with children every now and then or you actually haven't been to hospital yourself so you've got no idea what to experience? Um, so there's so many variables, but generally the feedback that I've had when I've been talking about this is everyone just goes, man, I wish I'd had that. So that says to me that actually no matter how hard the hospital system is trying, and they really are, you know, the hospitals have a really strong focus on patient experience. Um, it doesn't matter because they're not there in the lead up to it. So if you're in a children's hospital and you have a child who's going in for a really big operation, then absolutely you probably will be able to go in and um, be prepared by a child life therapist or at least have a you know walk around and understand where you're going. But that that's not really who our target market is. Our target market are those ones that seem to sort of fall between the cracks because it's not seen as um, a a big enough operation and it's not because they don't think it's important it's just that we have so few child life therapists in Australia um, that you know they can only focus on the most critical are you there yep oh yeah and the most critical fantastic yeah I, I was wondering when you were talking that I found interesting because I know that uh, for example oncology departments uh, they have a lot of support. So, I mean, when you're an adult and you have cancer, 
there's going to be a lot of social work support. But it seems to me that there's the the kids area is a bit like the wild wild west without offending any any professional out there. You were saying depends on the doctor, depends on the hospital. So clearly, not having a, a tool that is effective to to reach out children. I mean, that's why you guys exist. How important is the way that we communicate with kids? Because I'm pretty sure some doctors out there are not going to be, I mean, specialists in engaging with children. Their job is to do the operation, not to not to engage with the kids. Yeah, and again, I think it depends where you are, right? If you've got a doctor who spends a lot of their time with children, they will have learned over the years what works really well. If you've got a doctor who um, sees a child once a month, again, it's often not that they don't care. It's just that they don't know what works because they don't have that muscle um, memory from having done it, you know, 30 times. Uh, but there's some really basic things. So one of the things that we learned very quickly when we gave the first draft of the book to some of the child life therapists is you never say, are you scared to a child? Now, this is a really straightforward thing once someone explains it to you. If you say, are you scared or there's no need to be scared, you've immediately put it into their brain that this is something that they should be scared of. So what they recommend is instead of using any sort of um, emotions-based language, you use something like, I wonder what will happen. I wonder who will meet. And just by flipping that, what you've immediately done is you've opened it up for the child to have their own view because children at a young age, they always look to us to see how they should respond to situations. So if we're saying, are you scared, we've basically inferred to them that they should be because we think it's the most logical option. Whereas saying, I wonder what will happen. I wonder who will meet. I wonder what will pack. I wonder, and, and this is one of the reasons, so our, our story is, is based around Ted and Ted's a teddy bear. And um, one of the reasons that we do that rather than having a little boy or a little girl is that children tend to talk through their toys. You see it when they're playing games. So even... Children have a very hard time to articulate to adults how they're feeling. So you would have seen this when your child's having a major tantrum and they can't explain to you why they're so angry or so upset, but they just are. But if you give them a toy, or I used to do it with my daughter, we had these books and she got to pick from the emotions books and she'd pull out the, you know, the jealous book or whatever it was and it would turn out that she was jealous that her brother had got a lolly or something and she hadn't. So with the with Ted... As a parent, you can say to your child, I wonder what Ted's thinking right now. And the child will come out with all sorts of fascinating information, whereas if you'd said to the child, what are you thinking right now, they would have just clammed right up because they find it quite hard to articulate. So the language is really important and the language that parents use and the language that paediatric surgeons use and the language that nurses use um, is often causes more anxiety but it's never intentioned it's always well intentioned it's just that they don't know so part of what we're trying to do is get all of these really useful tools out that all of these people in our children's hospitals know and they're not secrets it's just that no one's ever had the time to share it more broadly because they're so busy focused on the really you know the really critically ill children that they're managing day in day out yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me when I was um, a, a school diving instructor, I was a school diving instructor for, for eight years. And one of the main rules when we talk about diving with brand new students is we do not mention sharks. Exactly. So, so sharks is no part of the conversation. Even if we like sharks or even if we're interested about sharks, we do not mention sharks because yeah. automatically it's going to put the frame of, of fear and obviously the terrifying idea for a brand new diver to to, to find sharks. So, Sarah, so I love the concept. You, so tell me a little bit more about the background, about how did you went from, uh, to, from meeting another Sarah that is, that had the same age, I mean, kids, and then you go, okay, we need to do something about this. What do we do after this? Where did you go? How did you get started? Because clearly you're not in the app industry. So. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I think, so I'm from the country and in the country, I'm pretty sure it comes from coming from the country. There is a whole thing where if you have something that can benefit other people, you have a responsibility to share it, even though it might not necessarily be extra benefit for you. 
because in the country you don't have access to a lot of the same resources. You're a lot more reliant on the people around you to help you through good and bad times. So one day someone else will know something that could help you and you want them to share it as well. So you've got this sort of responsibility. If you found something, you should do something about it. So I've always had that driver behind me. And um, at the time, so we actually started this a few years ago and then had to put it aside for a little while. But at the time, I was uh, running a different startup as um, a group of marriage celebrants for a younger marriage celebrants who are focused on storytelling ceremonies for couples. And Sarah and I would go to our playgroup session and we'd sit there and we'd come up with all these weird and wonderful ideas of different things that we could do. So we actually had another business creating fingerprint trees. She is a beautiful artist and so she would draw these trees and I would market them. And then okay, so I'm going to interrupt. I mean, I mean, <laughs> this is the meandering I mean, tale. <laughs> I love how I mean how random this went. And I was just thinking of the first thing you said. You were running a startup that does storytelling for marriage celebrants for weddings. So basically, about seventy percent of weddings in Australia are now civil ceremonies. They're not religious, and um, how each ceremony goes is completely up to the couple and the celebrant so there are like three paragraphs that legally must be required but everything else is completely up to you and for some people the ceremony is not really um it's not that it's not important but it's not the focus of their day so they're quite happy to have something pretty straightforward but for lots of people this the ceremony is a chance to tell their story and capture it at a point in time so uh, the group that i worked with um we did a lot of work about empowering couples to tell their own story and to really own their ceremony. So our logic was always, if you could use your wedding ceremony for any other person, then we haven't done our job because it should just reflect who you are as a couple, what's important to you, your backgrounds, whether it's, you know, cultural or religious. Um, we didn't do any religious elements, but a lot of people um, where they've got people marrying from different religions might like to bring some of that in. Um, family backgrounds, the people in your life are important to you and actually weaving that into a story so that everyone who comes along to your ceremony feels like they've captured a little piece of you um, and you feel like you've had a ceremony that is, it was literally written just for you. Um, so that was, so I was, I was like storytelling sort of weaves throughout my life, I think, is about the only consistency in all the different careers that I've had. I love it. Okay, so the storytelling, and then we move to the painting trees, the, the finger paint trees. That I have yeah, so, no idea what that is. Okay, so um, at a, we, just, we started doing them for weddings and for naming days, like the, the, the non-religious equivalent of christenings. And basically what happens at all of these events, I'm sure you've been to lots of them yourself, is you get this guest book. And everyone writes in there, dear Bob and Mary, wishing you a very happy day and a long life together. Love, you know, Joe and Susie. It gets stuck in a drawer and no one ever looks at it again. So um, these things called fingerprint trees started to come up, but most of them were really quite basic and, you know, black and white um, computer-generated sketches. Uh, so Sarah does these beautiful uh, branches and we had different ones with cars and things like that. Everyone who's a guest at your wedding comes along, puts a fingerprint, so they just use a, a stamp pad, fingerprint on and then writes their name over the top and the fingerprints form part of the picture. So for a tree, they form the leaves and for a car, they might form the, the cans that, you know, hang off the back of the just married or it might be um, for naming days, you know, we have little characters that it's the balloons that the character's holding and it's then a piece of art that can go up on your wall and you can look at it every day when you walk past. Lovely. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Random aside. So we were doing all of these things and then we started to talk about this uh, idea of um, sharing how to help kids prepare to go to hospital and one day Sarah said to me, oh, I really want to illustrate a children's book. Can you write one? And I was like, okay. Well, I can, but neither of us are famous. So there's not much point in us just writing a general children's story because there's way too much competition for that. Um, but this story that we've been talking about would actually make a really good children's book that we could write this story of Ted going to hospital and how he prepares for it and who he meets and what happens. And, you know, at the end, he's all happy, happy. And so we started to do that. And then 
Um, my way of making our business continually move forward is I just keep entering us into things. So I found this uh, competition called OZAP, which was a Western Australia um, thing, and we'd been evolving it to think actually an app would be quite good. It was when apps were first coming out for kids. An app would be quite good because you could customise it for, for different children or different experiences. And so I entered us in this competition and said, oh, by the way, Sarah, we now need to, you know, pull some some pages together to do this. We need to build and, something. Yeah, basically. Well, we didn't build because we're not tech, but, but, you know, we drew it all up. Um, and then we didn't actually get anywhere with that, but it did make us think about what we were doing and, I mean, actually this could work really well. And as part of that, I'd rung Westmead and spoken to them to try and get information on how many kids went to hospital because I was trying to figure out what the market size would be and what the need would be. And they had very kindly put us in touch with their child life therapists. And so we'd met with them and, and we were like, you know what, we've, I think we're onto something here. People keep telling us this is an, a really needed thing. Um, so why don't we try and do it? And so then I found the Screen Australia grants. And so I entered us into that. And as part of that, we had to build a prototype. So then we um, very fortunately had a few people who came and did work with us to build out this prototype and about a hundred page document that you had to submit um, and pulled that all together and got it in. And it was a grant that would have got us about 300 grand, which would have been more than enough to build. Uh, and we got all the way through to the final round and they said, oh, we're, there's the worst no we've ever had to say, but we've just been picked up on a technicality, which is that this grant is for app building companies and you're a company building an app. So oh you don't God, qualify. I mean, heartbreaking, right? Oh, I know. Like the, we would spend thousands of hours putting this all together. But the upside was we now had it all, right? Of so, course, yeah. So that we had some family stuff go on at that point that meant we had to put it aside and it just sat there niggling away at me for about five years. I went into a corporate role and ended up in um, senior executive corporate role, which was pretty full on. So given I'm the one who has to raise funds and everything, I couldn't do it whilst I was doing this other job. And it just kept niggling at me. And every time I talked to someone about it, they were like, yeah, that's amazing. I should do that. And so at the start of last year, I left my corporate job to get Ted off the ground. And basically, we've been pivoting ever since. So again, went back to my usual MO. I entered us in a pitching competition um, in May and said to Sarah, right, well, we need to pull all this together now because I've entered us into this pitching competition. And it was the Mums & Co. Empowered. And they had about 100 female uh, entrepreneurs who were all pitching and they had some really uh, well-established investors and um, startup mentors there as well. And I said to Sarah, like, it, it really doesn't matter how we go in it because it, it helps us put our pitch deck together, which, which we didn't have the first time. And it'll be great for seeing, you know, where we sit relative to everyone else. And We'll meet some great people and we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll have a good day because we'll learn all sorts of other stories from other founders. And at that stage, I didn't really know anyone in the founder space either. So, you know, it was also for me a way of starting to get into the ecosystem. So we went along to that and we got into the top eight. So we got to pitch in front of, they had little groups and then we got to pitch in front of everyone. And, and um, we didn't get through to the finals, but I was like, you know what, I'm not complaining because we just got to pitch in front of 100 people and 10 investors um, and I'd pitch I'd put us in for another pitch not pitch competition that night and we actually won that one so I was like well you know that's a pretty good day for our first ever pitch when we have um, not been popping around startup land for too long so that was quite exciting and what was more exciting though was the amount of people who came and talked to us afterwards and some of those people that I met those days are still my closest founder friends and I turn to them fairly often when I'm having a really crappy day or, um, you know, they'll come to me to ask me something and we've just got this really nice relationship now so you don't feel quite so lonely, um, which you can as a founder. Yeah, completely. I, I love the fact that you were almost systematically submitting the, I mean, the idea to every single type of competition out oh, yeah. there. <laughs> So I am somewhat selective. Like so, I, I don't, 
I do look and see if it's relevant. But my logic is every time you pitch, um, you refine your pitch because the questions that they asked at that first one, I was like, huh, I had never really taken that away from what we've been explaining before. So clearly we need to change the way we explain that one. So every, and since then I've probably done 10 different pitches, um, like, you know, major pitches, not just day-to-day ones. Um, and every time I learn something new and I watch all the other people pitch and you get ideas from them about what, you know, oh, that's a really clever way to explain that. What can I, you know, what can I learn from how they've articulated their target market or their traction plans or what have you. So I've done, the pitches have a couple of benefits. One is that, that you get to get better at articulating. I've had a couple of investor meetings come out of it that have not led to investment, but have led to initial relationships with people that I wouldn't otherwise be able to just rock up and talk to. Um, But the most important one I've found has been the connections that you make from it. So people are aware of our brand and who we are now, but also we get offers of help because what we're after at the moment is less um, money because we're not quite ready for money yet, but we're after connections into hospitals and um, uh, private health insurers and pathology providers who might want to actually pay for our app for their patients because it will increase their operational efficiency and improve their CSR, like their brand. Um, So that's usually my ask. It's not usually money. Or, you know, buy the book yourself or download our app once we actually have it. Or we're about to do a crowdfund. So, you know, come and pre-register for our crowdfund, all those sorts of things. I guess from a branding point of view for, uh, for uh, I mean, like like an insurance company or a health company, it, it will be brilliant. And it will be, I mean, the ROI of that exposure is is, is great because, it's almost impossible to hate your startup. And I think, <laughs> right? You are the reluctant hero. And I don't know if you are aware of the reluctant hero is you came up with a problem and then you came up with a solution. Um, and I deal with some, with many startups that in many cases they're in the fintech environment or in the insurance. And those ones are a bit easier to not fall in love. But in your case, you guys are, I mean, are the heroes. This is it's very difficult to, to not love your story. Tell me a little bit about the things that you learn about this pitching process and submitting your startup to, to this type of I mean, competition. Give me the beginner scores of how does this competition works because technically I'm not an expert. Okay, so um, the first thing I'd probably say is like it's lovely that you think people can't love our startup and I think most people do. Love does not translate to money or activity. <laughs> So we get a lot of people who love what we do, but we have to make it easy for them to act on that. And that's, I think, been the biggest learning. Um, Because if all you do is read all the startup press, you're like, yeah, you just walk up with a pitch deck and people give you lots of money, but they don't, um, which is probably a good thing. Uh, But in terms of the pitches themselves, I think... um, connect into all of the ecosystems and go down the rabbit holes because that's where I found out about most of these pitch events. So I um, subscribe to various different um, startup newsletters, but also I work out of Tankstream Labs. And one of the reasons that I work out of Tankstream Labs, it's only a couple of days a week because I just can't afford to be in there more, Um, but they connect you into the ecosystem of the startup hub in Sydney. And they also promote when anyone they're connected with is running some sort of pitch event. Um, And I go to a lot of meetups and even if you don't go to the meetups, if you sign up for the meetups, they tell you when all of these things are on. So, for example, Fishburners in the Startup Hub, they do pitch nights every Friday night and anyone can go. Like you have to pre-register and they've got limited space, but you don't have to be a Fishburners person to go. Um, Northern Sydney Innovation Hub also, that's one that I won and, got a meeting with an investor and a very nice bottle of whiskey. Um, So, you know, find them in the first place is the first thing. And then just apply. The worst thing that can happen is they say thanks but no thanks, but you never know when that might mean that they remember you for something else. So I've applied for lots of pitch opportunities that I haven't got. I don't take it personally. I'll still often go along just out of interest to see what 
the people who did get through had and was it how I articulated my pitch or was it actually that I was at a different stage to what they were targeting? So, um, you know, we're very early stage, we're pre-seed and um, we don't yet have products in market. Hopefully that will change in the next couple of weeks. Um, but that means that for some of these pitch comps, and there are some that I don't apply for, so there was one where it was actually pitching to investors and I know the people who run it and they would have put a lot of effort into getting the investors there well, I don't want to burn that relationship by going there and saying, but I'm not ready for investment. So, you know, be respectful of the purpose of the pitch. But really, the worst thing that can happen is you ask and they say no. Then once you actually get to the actual pitch, and this is where I think we have a, an advantage over a lot of startup founders. So my background in corporate has been a lot of public speaking and a lot of training and a lot of putting presentations together. So. I have a lot of experience in that area. I'm quite a confident public speaker um, and that makes it easier. But our, our double whammy on that is Sarah is an artist and a graphic designer, which means that our slides always look amazing. So, you know, you, you, you're not distracted by messy slides and, and we've got lots of cute pictures and Ted sits there and waves at you and talks to you. So that obviously helps as well. But even if you don't have access to that, just keeping your slides so that the font is the same on every single slide, that you've got the same size headings in the same position, um, that you don't have 50 million different colours on there, um, all of those things make a huge difference to the sort of subconscious uh, impact you're having on people. Because if they're so distracted because you've got really hard to read font or it keeps changing size and style, they won't be focusing on what you're saying. So that would be my other tip is focus on really straightforward slides. If you're artistic, absolutely make them beautiful. But if you're not, just make them consistent. And Sarah, what about the, obviously the storytelling, because I think the reason, I mean, let, let me be 100% honest. When, when I'm doing interviews with founders, my biggest stress when I'm doing the interview is, am I going to be able to find a story behind mm. this, this startup? And the the most difficult interviews is where there's no story, right? It's like, yeah, we have yeah. an idea and this is the startup and this is the app and we're trying to make money. But yeah. when there's a story, it's when things become uh, fascinating and it's, it's so engaging. So tell me a little bit about how the, the storytelling is so important in this process of pitching and obviously launching a startup. So you only have about 30 seconds to... Uh, get people engaged with your story. So you don't start with a long, drawn-out story. Our pitches, so when I pitch, my first line is, imagine you're five years old and going to hospital for the first time. You're surrounded by big people in masks and machines that go beep. Imagine how scary that would be for you. Now imagine you're the parent of that child. I don't need to imagine I'm the parent of that child because I was that parent and I know what it's like. So you can see I've already grabbed your attention and gone, you could be this person. And that, that means that we will then get their attention to talk about all of the other things about how we're actually going to solve the problem. But if I just stood up there and said, hi, I'm Sarah, I'm putting together books and apps that help kids prepare to go to hospital and so that they're not as anxious. You're like, yeah, look, it's nice and your pictures are cute but you haven't grabbed my emotional connection yet. So most founders will have a story about why they're doing what they're doing. They just don't think anyone else is interested. So they go immediately to the stats about how much money they can make for you or how big the market is or here's my really cool technical solution. Um, I mean, I've been lucky. I've seen so many amazing pictures and every time you just go, oh, yeah, that really works or... Um, you know, this doesn't work for us, but I can see how I could flip it around. Um, but the best way to tell that is to actually, whenever I have a pitch coming up, I just line up, you know, 10 people um, who are kind enough to stop and listen, sometimes under duress, and I do my pitch at them. And I just say, what did you take away from it? And that's the best way to get feedback. So don't sit there doing it in your own head. Actually sit there and do it with people. And they'll tell you, hey, that bit that you said halfway through, that was really interesting. You should put that at the front. And these are, these are not, I mean, they're founders, but they're not necessarily experts at pitches. 
Um, and I don't just ask founders. I just sort of ask any of my friends who'll stop and listen. Um, but there's a story in everything, unless, of course, you are building a startup purely because you think you can make money. Um, but I almost guarantee you most founders don't because none of us have enough money to do that and not, not work for a period of time. Okay, but if I was actually an artist, uh, founder listening to your story, I will tell you, well, sorry, it's easy for you. You have the most lovely story ever. It's, it's impossible to hate to hate you because you are the mm. hero of the movie. What do you recommend to people out there that they will tell you, listen, I sell servers and or microchips and there's no story. It's a boring business. Storytelling is not going to fit with our business. Do you think storytelling should be, I mean, across the board or how do we approach when companies are, are struggling to, to, to engage in an emotional level? Yeah, but uh, there's still a story behind that, right? I'm selling these widgets because by doing that I can make sure that this small business can actually back up their software and can continue to service their clients in the event of an attack or you know whatever it is my passion is making sure that small business people can keep doing their day-to-day work and not worry about you know this this particular technical requirement because I take that worry away from them so there is a story in everything it's just figuring out what it is and I I think a good place to start is why are you doing this? If someone says, why are you doing this startup that currently is not making lots of money as compared to going and working in a big corporate where you could probably make three times the amount of salary and not have any of the stress? What is it that drives you to do that? And if you dig enough, there is usually a driving passion that someone is trying to make a person or a company's life better through what they do. And that's that to me is where the story is. So the story isn't I sell widgets. The story is I help improve X for these people by doing Y. And that's what drives me. The problem is because when these people don't have a solution like mine, um, they have, you know, they spend four hours a week backing up on a tape or whatever it is. Whereas if they use my solution, that four hours can be spent helping their clients solve their problems. Wow. I mean, I love it. And I think many startup founders believe their story is not relevant. I think there's a lack mm. of confidence on, on, on falling in love with their own story or realizing that potentially they have something to tell the world. Do you, how do you find that when you were doing your, I was going to call it your pitching festival, your pitching marathon uh, with so many um, places that you went networking, did you find that people were embracing their own story or do you feel that people are still not completely convinced about the power of storytelling? Yeah, I think, you know, we're a, we're a for-profit, but we're a for-purpose business. So obviously for us, it's always going to be easier um, to um, find the story, if you like. Um, for most social purpose, it's it's easier to find the story because you, you're doing something that is seen in a social context as being, you know, for the better good of the world, if you like. But um, but I've seen some really clever ways that um, that companies that I would have thought were pretty um, dry in terms of purpose, not not purpose, but in terms of um, obvious storyline, have come up with some some great storylines about why what they do will make a difference to the world. A lot of the pitching I do is in the social space because that's um, the area that, that we live in and you have to have a different approach to um, revenue and profit and investment returns when you're doing a social purpose. We're not, we're not going in there going, we'll make you 10 times your money in two years. We're going in there saying, hey, we will make you some money, but we're also going to be able to do a lot more good for, you, for the world if, if you support us. So... Um, I would always recommend to any startups to go to as many pitching comps. If you don't go in it, go and watch them and just see how other people tell the story and don't think that your story isn't important just because it's not about saving the world. If it's making someone's life easier that will enable them to then do other things, then that's still an important thing to do and it's an important part of the overall community. Falling in love with their story is so important, especially when you're a founder and you're trying to, I mean, make the world love your startup. It's actually very difficult to, mm. 
to, to allow people to, to love your story. I mean, your, your product, if you're not loving your own story. Sarah, I have a question about, obviously, what you're trying to achieve. One of the challenges that I see, and I don't know if you agree, is at the same time you want to, I mean, sell the app, sell the book, but mm. also is the potential corporate side of this, right? Where I can see a big, I mean, I mean, Health Insurance Alliance or Bupa being, I mean, having a beautiful branding and exposure uh, through through an app like this. So, how do you balance these two sides? From one side is like, hey, I want all the partners to hear about this, but I also want hospitals and and, and potential insurance companies to be part of this project. Yeah, so we pivot a lot around our business model, and you know, the upside of not actually having sold anything yet is we still can um we originally thought that we would build the book and the app and we'd market it all direct to parents and then we realized that um that's a bit of a distribution nightmare so for ted goes to hospital it makes sense to market direct to parents because actually it can be built into their early learning framework so because all kids will have some exposure to hospital at some point it's a good social story so it doesn't have a timeline on it whereas we're doing a research project with Sydney Children's and Uni of New South Wales at the moment testing a prototype of our app that is targeted at kids who are having ultrasounds and blood tests and making it easier for them. Now, most kids that do blood tests, they only get a couple of days' notice. Clearly, that's not going to be enough time for us to be marketing to their parents at exactly that point in time for them to know that it exists and download it and use it. So that's one of the reasons that we're looking at this model of partnering with pathology centres and hospitals and the private health insurers. I mean, ideally we'd love, you know, the government health system to pay for it, but that's such a big behemoth that you sort of leave that um, as a sideline project. But um, we uh, we originally went, oh, we'll be able to convince them of this because, as you said, it's so easy to love TED. But actually there's a difference between them loving it and, and them actually putting dollars on the table And one of the reasons we're doing this research project is to provide some proof point for them. Um, We have a hypothesis that using uh, the app will mean that, one, the patient experience is a lot better um, in that they have a much nicer time and they're not as as traumatised by it. They don't end up with needle phobias and things afterwards. But also, importantly, we think it will provide operational efficiencies. So most Blood tests that children have at the moment require two staff, one to hold the child down and one to do the test. And if you've got a child that's really, really worked up, the test will take two to three times as long because they have to keep stopping and starting or trying to calm the child down in the first place. So our hypothesis is if a child uses TED, they will go into that test and they will be so calm that you'll only need one person the majority of the time And also, you're not going to need escalated intervention. So you're not going to end up with a need for sedation or getting really senior staff in to manage it, which immediately provides a cost benefit for the company, but it also provides a time benefit for the overall system because that means you can get two to three appointments in at the same time, which reduces all your waiting times for all of your other people that come after. So we are hoping that by having that proof And because it's being run by a uni, we know that the research is solid. It's not just us doing research that happens to prove exactly what we want. Um, We can then take that to those um, corporates and show them how they can have a cost saving for a small small upfront cost. So that's our, that was a learning for us. We thought we could just sort of waltz in and they go, yeah, it's amazing. I completely believe you. But, you know, that's not even enough to get you in the door, basically. Um, so that's what we're doing with them. The other thing that we've just um, put together is an offer uh, for sponsorship for corporate and philanthropic sponsorship where um, companies and families who want to make a difference to other children going to hospitals. So, for example, we have a lot of people who talk to us who've had similar experiences to you where they were in hospital themselves as a child and they know how hard that was for their family, so they want to try and make it better for other families. And so for those people, what we're doing is offering a sponsorship package where they can um, make a donation that effectively we create branded versions of the book that have their brand on them. They also have a recognition in the front of them and they can put a, a note in there and that then gets sent out to families in need. So, for example, if you... 
um, take on the, the uh, I'm just trying to think what we called them now, uh, we've just named the packs. So um, we've got an advocate pack where if you go for that, then 5,000 children will get access to this book and it will have a note in there from you explaining why you've decided that um, you wanted to contribute to this and the book will have the branding on it. The book has things in it like a certificate and a journey album, so it's it's something that they're likely to stay hold of for a long time. Um, and we also have some other tools in there to help the corporate share this story amongst their own staff. I come in and do a workshop with their staff or their clients talking about, um, you know, preparing your children and empowering them through play. Uh, so overall, as a corporate, you can leverage our brand to do good in a way that you wouldn't otherwise have the resources to do. So yeah, I, I love how it's, it's, it's a beautiful mix between helping the brand, helping the kids and helping the parents and honestly finding a solution for this, for this a problem. I mean, because I've, I've been in that position where it's so difficult to, to provide certain level of help to the parents and to the kids during these um, going to, to operations. Tell me, one of the things that I obviously notice is that TED could become, if, if you expand, TED could become, I mean, huge, right? We, we can talk about yeah. different operations, different procedures, um, and also things that are not directly linked to, I mean, to medical cases, right? Potentially yeah. a divorce or bullying. And yeah. I think that is the, the, the power of, of building the brand, right? Pretty much. So um, we are targeting first um, what I call the ones with the biggest gap. So the problems that the that are most challenging for families, but currently have the least available amount of information. So for example, we're not jumping into supporting children who have cancer straight away because they actually have some amazing people working in that space, providing them with great tools. But we are talking to um, another research institute, we're talking to them about doing a book to help uh, children who have older family members who have dementia or might be getting older and, and dying because that's something that families often don't know how to discuss. Um, we're also talking uh, um, with another university about doing a research project for siblings of Premi children to explain to them what might be happening with their siblings and also prepare them for the fact that their sibling may not actually um, live through the experience. We've been asked about whether it's something we could do to uh, help children of parents who are doing gender transitions, um, obviously divorce. Wow. Uh, so there's all myriad of, of challenges that families face that can be made easier through play and what we see as our role in that is giving tools to the children and the parents to actually empower them to have those conversations because often it's just that the parents or the carers don't have the language to start the conversation and, 100%, don't, yeah. and don't want to do more damage. So what we do is we include parent tips and discussion points and that can get a parent started on a discussion. And, and an example of that is that one I said earlier about saying, I wonder, rather than, are you feeling? Yeah, completely. And, and, and the fear one, I mean, obviously. And, and I, I love when you, when you mentioned that the parents don't take action because they're scared of making things worse. And I, and I mm. think I've been guilty of that. I think every single parent has been guilty of that, of knowing, like, oh, should I start talking about this? What if I don't do it properly? And there's so many sources out there of information of how to tackle different challenges in our kids' life. I have three boys, 13, 9, and a two-year-old. So, so yeah, I, I've been on those, on those moments. Sarah, this has been fascinating um, to explore the way that you actually your brain thinks. I love the storytelling <laughs> factor. I love the hustle of going to every single pitch festival in the, in, the, in the country. If people want to find more information about TED, about what you're doing, uh, about the other Sarah, uh, where they can actually uh, find more information about you guys. So you can head along to teachted.com.au or um, our socials are all teachted. So um, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, we're all on teachted. Um, I wrote a, an article recently on Medium called uh, about being a multi-potentialite, which I think I mentioned to you in our um, thing, which is how my brain works, which is basically doing lots and lots of different things all at once. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into that. So if anyone ever feels like their CV looks like a, um, you know, a 
Swedish buffet. I'd tell you the restaurant. Um, I that. Yeah. Um, so that's on my LinkedIn profile, uh, which is Sarah Cummings Sydney. Um, and always oh. happy to catch up with people. So if anyone uh, ever wants to talk to me about anything that we've done or just connect because it seems like we'd be similar sorts of people, always happy to do that. I think um, having connections because people are interesting is so much more important than having connections because people can do something for you. Yeah, I, I was going to let you go now, but I'm going to stop you before you leave. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, so as a background to our listeners, I, I, I put this question randomly. Uh, if you have a special superpower when people do the booking for the podcast and I'm going to be completely transparent. In many cases, the the superpower is, is so boring that I don't even mention it. But this morning <laughs> when I woke up, I read yours and it's multipotentiality. And it's seeing opportunities in the cross-section of life and rapid learning combined with baked in need to act when I find something that can make the world a better place. Plus, I just do it anyway and see what happens approach to life. Is that good? Is that awesome or is that chaotic, I mean, in your life? <laughs> um, I don't know any other way to be. It's the way I've always been my entire life. I've always ended up doing lots of different things at once and it's what keeps me engaged and entertained. I'm sure for some people it would be completely overwhelming, but um, I was so excited when I saw this. It's actually a TED Talk that Emily Wapnick does about um, – being a multi-potentialite and it was so exciting to find a name for it because I'd always sort of been told that my CV just didn't really make sense and um, when I stopped work to have kids uh, by the time I went back to work I had like four different businesses in completely unrelated fields just because I'd discovered how easy it was to start businesses and never quite discovered how to make money out of them but um, but I'm always one of those people that even if I'm doing only one thing for work, I've got six books that I'm reading at any point in time or someone will tell me about a particular activity and I'll just get so fascinated by it that I'll go to all these meetups just to learn about it. And it's always, I know for me, it's always made me better at whatever my core role is because I can see the cross-sections of opportunity and I can see how um, something from one industry can apply to another and if you look at entrepreneurs that's what they do so you look at something like um, uber uber's just taken a technique that worked really well in one industry and applied it to the taxi industries same with places like airbnb you know they've taken a concept and a structure and a way of doing things that works in one industry applied it to another industry and completely disrupted it so i think that it's actually something that's really common amongst entrepreneurs and it's people like it's they're also known as um uh, renaissance men you know that they were just good at lots of different things and unfortunately in our generation if you do lots of different things people often think that you don't know anything about any of them because you haven't done it for long enough to be a deep expert but the point of the multi-potentialite way of learning is you don't actually learn everything from scratch you learn it, compare it to all the different things that you already know and then really the only bits that you have to understand is the differential between the two. So you can actually short circuit the, the learning process a lot. So the three multipowers, the, the three superpowers that um, that Emily says multipotentialites have is idea synthesis, rapid learning and adaptability. And to me, a good founder has those in spades. And then obviously the, the challenge is to to be focused and and and, and allowed to I mean and not allow the, the superpower to control your life because if, I'm exactly the same way I have all these ideas and when sometimes when I'm listening to podcasts I mean with people or I'm actually doing a podcast my brain goes oh my god that's a great idea yeah and, and <laughs> yeah the the challenge is I think to find yourself really good um, companions who are different to you. Um, so I work really well with um, implementers. I'm quite happy to come up with an idea, get it going, get it better down, but then I don't want to do it anymore. So finding people who are happy to do maintenance um, is really helpful. Uh, and also just being aware of it yourself that you do put limitations on how many new ideas you can have at any point in time. But I think it makes for a really interesting life. The people that I've met over my life just because I've been curious about something um, 
has been amazing. I've, I've heard so many interesting stories from people that you could walk past in the street and not realise that they have this incredible story to tell and my life is always better for it. And I find it actually really energising to hear about new things and learn about new things. Um, but, you know, I'm very... My parents moved a lot when I was younger, so I would consider myself a highly adaptive person just from that because I've learnt that even if something is hard at first, it will be okay in the end. And that's why I love doing the podcast because I find it like the most selfish thing I've ever done because I have a chat with people that are super interesting yeah. for one hour. I can ask any questions. <laughs> they get to answer the question. And yeah, it's, it's, it's the best networking ever without, I mean, having a coffee or paying for a coffee. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Right, thank you so much for being on the no show. Such Thanks a blast. for having me. And I can't wait to, to see where, where Ted goes. I'm pretty sure that, um, I mean, Ted has a, a bright and beautiful future. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Bye. Bye.